0: Tonight, we are, I'm reviewing uh, chapters 5 through 8 in Chuck Swindoll's book on parenting, but going to mostly um, spend a little bit more time on chapter 7. So um, just briefly summarizing, um, for those of you who were here two months ago, Kristen was talking about just knowing and learning the uniqueness of your child and then cultivating that. And then Hannah uh, in the area of discipline, not shying away from it and how important it is to help to mold their character and how important it is for children to learn um, that they have to suffer consequences for wrong choices. But tonight we're going to look at two different um, examples in the Bible of parents, fa- two father-son examples. Um, first, David in the Old Testament and the prodigal son's father in the New Testament. And each story has different outcomes. So in chapters 5 and 6, it touches on David's dysfunctional family. And and, and most of you guys or you ladies are familiar with David. Um, You know, he he multiplied wives to himself. So uh, he was guilty of polygamy. He was guilty of adultery of Bathsheba. He covered up the sin of his adultery. And then he ordered the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Then there was, unfortunately, incest amongst his children, when Amnon, his oldest son, raped his half sister Tamar, and uh, this we have the story in Second Samuel thirteen, David was made aware of the sin. He was angered by the sin, but that was all he did. He ignored the sin, this terrible sin committed by Ab- Amnon. A few years go by, and um, um, Tamar's brother um, Absalom was. Um, increasingly becoming bitter as dad's lack of addressing this horrible sin. So eventually Absalom took matters into his own hands and he had his oldest brother Amnon killed. Then Absalom fled fled for two years. He was eventually permitted to return, but David essentially ignored him. We have this story in 2 Samuel 14. Two more years went by. Then it was a a total of seven years after the rape took place. Then Absalom... um, obviously incensed by his dad's lack of action and his dad's passivity, uh, eventually led a revolt and started um, turning people's hearts away from David. And um, a bloody civil war began. We have this in 2 Samuel 15. And that eventually the death of Absalom and David had to grieve the loss and death of two sons. So this passivity of David was nothing new. Swindoll suggests that perhaps David's own shame made him tentative in prosecuting the sins of others, and and that could be true, but no excuse for his passive parenting. Uh, In page 108 of the book, um, I thought this was a really good explanation, where Swindoll says, plain and simple, David's fatal flaw as a parent was his passivity. He conquered nations and built the kingdom, but he left his family to solve its own problems. But children can't rear themselves. They need more than food, water, and shelter. They need us actively engaged as parents. He was Israel's greatest king. He was praised by the people. Israel experienced peace and prosperity while David was king, but his children had a different viewpoint. Swindoll gives three warnings to parents who may be tempted to neglect their role as protector and guide. The first, disconnected and damaged relationships at home result in dysfunctional family members. Second warning, passive and permissive parents produce angry, frustrated children. Third warning, unresolved and unreconciled conflicts create wounds that never heal themselves. But he also gave three principles when seeking restoration of a relationship. The first is fractured relationships begin to heal when we're willing to hear and admit the truth. The second principle, reconciliation continues to occur as we quit controlling and manipulating the other person. And the third, final relief comes when we release all resentments and accept our responsibility. Um, Chapters 7 and 8 give examples of the prodigal son's father and the way he parented. So chapter 7 contrasts David as a father and the prodigal son's father as a parent. The prodigal son's father really was a model parent in many ways. He also had two difficult sons like David. His younger son ran wild and his older was self-righteous and everyone knew it, but both were guilty of different sins. But he is a great example to us of how a godly parent guides a child, however stubborn, angry, or selfish he or she may be. So in Luke chapter 15, we have the story of the prodigal son, and I'm going to read from 11 to 20. And Jesus said, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and embraced him and kissed him. So through this story, um, we can pull out qualities of an ideal parent. Swindoll is- illustrates this in page 141. So the first thing that's evident is that he created a comfortable home for his sons, a nurturing, grace-filled environment, and he took care of the kids' physical needs. The second, the father was approachable and he was gracious. His son was free to speak his mind, even though entitled, self-centered, and lacking respect for his dad and his family, or appreciation how he was raised, or understanding of the sacrifices both of his parents made. And the third, the father knew his son. Although the son was old enough to leave home, he was not mature enough to handle the responsibility to live independently, and the dad knew that. The father didn't resist. There was no talking the son out of this. I suspect the father probably saw this coming as heartbreaking as this was for him. And he was probably preparing for it and praying and asking God for wisdom and guidance for when that time came. The father knew that a looser grip was his only hope of one day redeeming his son. And I can tell you, as a parent of adult children and adult, a lot of adult nieces and nephews, this is a very hard thing to do. But it has to be done. So I wanted to share with you what I have a relative who's been struggling. Um, it's been very agonizing with a prodigal. And it was just on my heart to just kind of ask her what... Um, how it has been and how it has felt. And I'm just going to just a really brief text she sent me. These past years have been some of the most difficult for our family. Learning to love and let go of a prodigal has been the most difficult lesson of my life. As a mom, you want to keep them close and protect them regardless of their age. Even as a young man, I could see his baby face but after trying to control the situation and doing all that i could to insert myself into his choices we finally let it go it was horrific it was even at a time that he didn't even know we didn't even know where he was if he was dead or alive for some reason i had a great sense of peace during that time knowing that if he did die from his addiction he would be with the lord or knowing that the lord would rescue him He did rescue him. The journey is not over, but I can see a light at the end of the tunnel, however long that is. He is now over a hundred days sober and stronger than ever. My best advice is to let go, but keep watch at the same time. Just like the prodigal son's father knew, didn't know when he was coming back, but he was waiting." So. in addition to these qualities that the prodigal son's father illustrated through this story, um, Swindoll highlights the attitudes of an ideal parent. So, first, the father was willing to listen and to risk. He chose to listen and he chose to hand over wealth and probably worked very hard for this wealth and perhaps giving this wealth to the the sons created financial hardship for him and his family. We don't know that, but it could have. He was also willing to release him completely. No arguing. He released him without controlling and manipulating. The prodigal left home. He engaged in loose living, wild and disorderly, and found many friends. Proverbs 14.20 says the rich man has many friends. Some time goes by, the money was spent, his friends abandoned him, a famine struck the land he was living in, he was broke and starving. He found a menial job working among the pigs and was still starving. Again, we have no scriptural evidence of the father trying to woo the son back, nor of the father questioning himself and his decision to let the boy go. No feelings of guilt, or regret, just hopeful prayer. A third quality he exhibits was that he was willing to wait for God to change his son. Easy to write, excruciatingly hard to do. But finally, the prodigal's heart was genuinely contrite and humbled. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. And in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that beautiful? So at the job that I have, I, um, I conduct tours. Um, I, it's, a, it's a retirement community, and I conduct, conduct tours for per, prospective residents. And I met this gentleman a few months ago, and he had shared with me that he was estranged from his daughter for five years because of a lifestyle decision she made that he and his wife didn't agree with. And it was actually him and his wife who cut the relationship off, or they thought that they should. And finally, thankfully, this man came to his senses and reached out and rekindled the relationship with his daughter. And it was especially awesome and gracious of the Lord because not long after his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and then she died within a few months. So he was so thankful their relationship was restored before the mom passed away. So we have to be really careful to not take the scriptures of not having anything to do with unbelievers to an extreme. We have that reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Um, we're going to have family members that are welcome with the Lord, colleagues, business associates, friendships. And if they're willing to remain our friends, our job is to be light and salt to these people. We need to remember that Jesus was and is the friend of sinners, and we need to represent Christ the best we can. And when it's difficult, just ask Jesus to help us. Obviously, marriage is a different thing. You don't want to go into a marriage being unequally yoked. But the children who God gave us, we didn't choose them and they didn't choose us. God gave them to us. And the scriptures tell us in Psalm 127, verse 3, that they are a gift. They are a heritage from the Lord. So um, I like how Swindell says this. The faithful parent leaves the light on and keeps the heart door unlocked. So the last attitude that he highlights of the ideal parent was that the prodigal son's father was willing to accept, forgive, and restore. Restore is a powerful thing. It's actually a verb, so it's an action word. And it means to bring back a previous right, practice, custom, or situation. Swindle points out the contrast of David's reaction to Absalom returning home. David's reaction was cold, gave him a reluctant kiss, but there was continued disengagement. There was no restoration of the relationship. But the prodigal son's father's reaction to his son's return, he saw him, he felt compassion, he ran, he embraced, and kissed, and obviously forgave. It's evident in verse 21, because as we know, as we read the story, the son rehearsed his apology to the father, but he never had to give it to him. Verses 22 to 24, is the restoration part of the story. The father wanted to clean him, give him the best robe, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and take his reproach away, just as the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And he wanted to have a big party. In Luke 15, just before the story, Jesus tells the crowd, just before speaking about the prodigal son, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He closes the chapter by asking us three questions. Do you have a parent you need to thank? Do you have a son or daughter you need to release? And do you have a prodigal that needs forgiveness and restoration? So a little bit about prodigals. So I realize a lot of you ladies have younger children, but one day you might have a prodigal. Hopefully not but all of us know one, or have known one. Statistically, 50 to 66% of kids brought up in Christian homes will walk away from their faith. Typically happens during the college years, and sometimes it's the influence from secular schools. I've seen that a lot. I have friends going through that right now. I have nieces and nephews going through that right now. But I went to Bible college, and there were definitely students willingly not following the Lord. Some were there because their parents gave them no other option. Like, if you want to go away to school, these is your only option. Uh, some, the allure of sin was too enticing, and the kids came to the school not very well equipped, but there's lots of reasons. But as parents, we can do everything right by the book, um, and there's many resources out there to help us, um, but there's no foolproof way to prevent them from walking away from the precious faith we did our very best to instill in them. I located a Barna study comprised of eight national studies that interviewed teens, young adults, parents, youth pastors, and senior pastors. So there was not one single reason why um, these young adults walked away, but there were six significant themes, and these are the results of the survey. And this is the young adults. This this was their response. I'm not going to – I have no opinion either way. I just want you to be aware they said the churches seem overprotective. So having access to other worldviews, they want their faith to connect to the world they live in. So they experience that their Christianity is stifling and fear-based and reluctant to take risks and that Christians demonize everything outside the church and that the church ignores the problems of the real world. So that was one theme. The second teens and 20-somethings' experience of Christianity is shallow. One-third said church is boring. One-quarter of them said faith is not relevant to their career or interests. Or the Bible is not taught clearly enough, which, praise the Lord, doesn't happen here. Um, they said God seems missing from my church experience. The third theme. Churches come across as antagonistic to science. Science. The tension they feel between Christianity and science. Churches are out of step with, science, with the scientific world we live in. Some feel Christianity is anti-science. The fourth, young Christians' church experience related to sexuality are often simplistic and judgmental. Uh, is tension they feel trying to live up to church expectations of chastity and sexual purity, especially given the fact that many are marrying later on in their um, late, later 20s and early 30s. Um, and even as a young adult, I, I am surprised that sexual compatibility is a phrase that I've heard from single adults, where they feel it's very important before making a marital commitment. And yet those who have made a mistake feel judged by the church. The fifth... They wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. And our postmodern um, mindset uh, esteems open-mindedness, tolerance, and acceptance. And most young adults want to find common ground with each other, which sometimes glosses over differences. So some of the responses was churches are afraid of the beliefs of other faiths, and others don't want to feel forced to choose between faith and friends. And they said some said church is like a country club for insiders. And the last is the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. They don't feel safe to express doubts, and their faith does not help to tie uh, depression or other emotional problems. So it's very interesting, I guess not surprising, and we've all seen it. um, But the good news is that many, many do come back. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Um, Chapter 8 confronts the older brother attitudes and that's in luke 25 to 32 and you ladies are familiar with the story prodigal comes back father restores him throws a big banquet the older brother's in the fields hears all the hullabaloo going on ask the servant the servant said your brother's come home you know and there's there's jealousy it's like okay i live a pure life i don't take your money i don't squander and you throw him a party so you guys know the whole story so um and you know what um you know, the older brother, he illustrates the attitude of a Pharisee. And, you know, as time goes on in our walk with the Lord and and we have years and experiences and trials, we can become weary and we can become self-righteous and we can become proud of ourselves for abstaining from sinful things. And there is a little Pharisee in all of us. Swindle points out regarding the older brother that he was ungrateful. He was petty and narcissistic. He exaggerated his brother's sins to make his own righteousness shine brighter. He had a lurid or sensational imagination, so he exaggerated. And he felt that his relationship with his father depended on his being faithful and good. And, you know, Jesus, you know, he's so, so great. We have such a small snippet of his interactions with people and the, the examples that we have in, in scripture. But the truth of his message revolved always around the word grace. And that's a word that um, Pharisees don't have in their vocabulary. With grace, you don't receive what you deserve. You receive good things you haven't earned and you cannot repay. And grace relieves us of the need to clean up. We can see ourselves in all three roles, the prodigal, the father, and the older brother. First, we all have enough of the younger brother's rebellion in us that it should keep all of us from judging and criticizing anybody. Second, we all have so much of the older brother's pride in us that we could also be just as mean-spirited and hypocritical. But third, we all need more of the father's grace in us. So um, I wanted to share just um, a little bit of encouragement to some things that I found, but also wanted to give some advice from an older parent, that being me, Um, so the first thing, this is with my daughter, uh, 25, so she was actually in the daycare here because my husband worked at the church and she was the first baby in the daycare. So it was a very big deal because there wasn't any other babies around and people were very excited having the baby around. And one of the teachers, I was pushing her in the stroller and somebody was stopped and doted on her. And she said to me, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. So I never forgot that, and there's a lot of truth to that. Parenting brings out the best and worst in us. Spurgeon said in one of his devotionals I read that children, they are a heritage of the Lord, but with them comes much anxiety. So here's a little advice that I have. Kids of all ages have emotions. They are sad sometimes. They're moody. They're angry, just like we get sometimes, and that's okay. We need to allow them to feel and express them when they need to, just like we do. We need to vent. We have girlfriends. We need to let those emotions out sometimes. Let them do it. Then, when the dust settles, redirect them and point them to Jesus. Another bit of advice. Don't have expectations on them that you knew you couldn't meet at their age. Have their back when necessary, but realize that sometimes people around them are going to have some insight that might be helpful to you. Teachers, grandparents, coaches, and listen to what they say. Don't nag them so much. Don't confront them in front of others or humiliate them in front of others. Here's a good one: don't worry so much what other people think. They are flesh and they struggle with a sin nature just as we do. Show grace. It is not our job to create perfection. Remember that, it's impossible. They do not need to be carbon copies of us. Find ways to respect them at each age and let them know it. We want respect and so do they. There's times you'll be happy and so proud And times you'll be disappointed and discouraged. The majority of your decisions will be sacrificial, and they will continue to be, and you may not see the fruit of your sacrifices for a very long time. Here's a good scripture: the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember that when you get angry. James chapter one, verse twenty. We play lousy holy spirits. Don't cover up their sins. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who covers sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." Psalm 66 verse eight says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And do your very, very best to not compare them to their siblings or their friends. You can point out nice qualities in their siblings and friends, but don't compare. I found this research article on Focus on the Family's website. It was a Pew University research. This is encouragement, by the way, that reveals parents are the most influential in leading kids to Christ with no close competitor. A gentleman named Christian Smith, professor of sociology and religion from the University of Notre Dame, conducted 230 interviews, him and his team, Some readers might be surprised to know the single most powerful causal influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents, not peers, media, youth group leaders, or teachers. The influence of parents on children while they still live at home, including their influence on religious identities, beliefs, and practices is paramount, lasting for years, decades, and often lifetimes. Bottom line, this means parents are the greatest single evangelists for the gospel in the world and its greatest arena is the family. The most important factors of parental influence are, first, emotional warmth and affirming parent-child relations. Two, quality of conversation over quality of content. Three, parental listening more important than talking. And fourth, important that mother and father share the same faith. Father's especially important. Family is the single most powerful transmitter of the gospel from generation to generation. Jane D. Hall, former governor of Arizona, said at the end of the day, the most overwhelming key to the child's success is the positive involvement of parents. And I just want to close with just really sweet things I found in Swindoll's book. So he talks about, mom and dad, you are heroes, regardless of how you feel. Taking on the responsibility of willingly willingly to turn children into healthy adults. You are to be commended for taking on this terribly difficult and largely thankless task. Thank you. This is for you, ladies. So really take it in. Thank you for the many sacrifices you make. Thank you for doing what is right even when things don't work out well. Thank you for saying what may be difficult for your children to accept and for being the truth teller when you'd rather be a pal. Thank you for loving them when you feel so unloved. Thank you for fulfilling your role with such devotion and faithfulness even when you run out of hope, energy, and ideas. Finally, here's my last piece of advice. This is for me, for you, for all of us. Live a life of integrity. By the way we live, they will see that the Christian life is viable. Share life experiences. Share how you came to love God, to know God, and to rely on God. I read this little snippet of a devotion, one of my um, Spurgeon devotionals. He says, are thou praying for some beloved one? Oh, give up, give not up on thy prayers, for Christ is mighty to save. You are powerless to reclaim the rebel, but your Lord is almighty. Lay hold on that mighty arm and rouse it to put forth, forth its strength. So, amen. So I'm going to pray. And... uh I want to lift up the prodigals that we know up to the Lord, okay? Okay. Dear Father, um, thanks for being with us. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth, Lord. Thank you that it just um, it reveals stuff. It convicts us, Lord. It guides us. Um, it helps us, Lord. It comforts us, Lord. And um, we're so thankful for it, Lord. It truly is... Um, it's life to our flesh, Lord, it's health to our bones, Lord, and it, um, it is our peace. And Lord, um, Lord, you know the things that um, are just so taxing um, for us as parents and, and the fears that we have. And um, it's very daunting at times, Lord, but we know, Lord, that the children you gave us um, are a gift. And we really, really want to do the best job we can before you, Lord. So help us, equip us, Lord. We pray that you would um, reveal yourself to our children, Lord. Um, Soften their hearts towards you and your truth. We pray, Lord, that they would fall in love with you at a young age, Lord, and that you would just um, protect their faith and protect their hearts. And, Lord, even with the best of intentions, Lord, as well-meaning as we are, Lord, we, we start with the with the best of intentions, and we want to do everything right. Um, and sometimes, Lord, it's it's their sin nature. Sometimes it's, it's the mistakes we've made or things that the kids have experienced with other family members or at school, Lord. But, um, Lord, as you know, because um, you experienced it, sometimes they walk away. And I just think of, Lord, just... Um, the prodigals that I know, Lord, relatives of mine, Lord, this, Lord, who these ladies know, Lord, we just lift them before you, Lord. We just pray that, Lord, um, you would allow them to see you, who see you, who who you really are, and Lord, just bring believers around them, Lord. Just keep, Lord, around every corner that they would just see that you are real, that you are true, and that you are faithful, Lord. Lord, let them see that, Lord, nothing in this world works. And um, that you truly are the best thing, Lord. It's not always the easy way. It's not always the narrow. The narrow way is not always the easy way, Lord. We've experienced that, Lord. But it's the best way. And Lord, let them come back to you, Lord. Just give us the joy of seeing these loved ones of ours come back to you soon. And we thank you that we can come before you. We thank you, Lord, that you see the end from the beginning. And we thank you, Lord, that um, there's going to be a lot of great testimonies. Help us to have hope while we're waiting, and help us to not grow weary in well-doing. Lord, we just give you um, this time of of fellowship and prayer together. Lord, we pray that we could just be an encouragement to each other, that we can help one another. Lord, that some of the agonies of our hearts, Lord, that you would just bring clarity and peace even tonight. And we would leave here just very strengthened um, and very refreshed, and with a a, a fresh filling of faith in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.